My privilege offers little experience with the loneliness of severe illness without reliable support, meaning I have fantastic support. I seldom experience profound loneliness. Hope and support go together. Hope and support provides a foundation upon which to build spiritual health. Spiritual strength hastens recovery toward best health. Much support comes from caregivers, be they family, friends, or professionals. Caregivers are necessary for best health for those of us with disabling, chronic, or acute illnesses. Hence, the second episode of this series about emerging adults with mental illness centers on mom, parent, caregiver, Erica Blair, mother of Emika Chima. I'm grateful to Erica and Emika for their willingness to share their journey with us. I realize that my inclusion of video in my production channels can create some dilemmas for readers and listeners. You can't see the videos and might miss guests' body language, scrolling images, and print. I try to stay aware of these dilemmas. When I started my podcast, many blog followers thanked me for my years of content creation and prepared to move on. Not wanting to lose a loyal audience, I created article-grade audio transcripts. Verbatim audio transcripts underwhelmed me, so the effort to edit for readability was worth the many hours' effort to edit for readability. I used the app Grammarly to help me. Now I spend much of my time learning the nuts and bolts of video production with help from my grandson and thoughtfully using alt text for images so followers with limited sight can appreciate those images. For those not looking at the video version of the podcast, please let me know when something in the audio doesn't make sense because you're missing something. Help me learn. Email me at Danny at health-hats.com or go to my website, health-hats.com, and leave a comment. Welcome to Health Hats, the podcast. I'm Danny Van Loon, a two-legged, cisgender, old white man of privilege who knows a little bit about a lot of health care and a lot about very little. We will listen and learn about what it takes to adjust to life's realities in the awesome circus of healthcare. Let's make some sense of all of this. Erica, thanks for joining me. I really appreciate it. When did you first realize that health was fragile? Oh, when did I first realize health was fragile? Personally, I realized health was fragile from a young age. I've had a lot of health issues growing up. Well, mm. I've always known that. Is this in specific to my son? No, I was asking about okay, you. Well, yes. Oh, okay, yes. I've always known that health is fragile because growing up, yes, I, I had a lot of GI issues growing up. 
that I suffered with and had a lot of surgeries from a young age as a child. So I've always known health is fragile. Yeah. I've had a lot more surgeries than many people. That must be challenging. Yes. You must be proud of your son. Very proud of him. I am so honored to have him as a son. He is not only a great help and support to myself and our family, but he just, he has so much to give to others as well. Mm -hmm. It's just very inspiring. Emika welcomes you speaking with me about your journey together. Yes. But there, it must have been a transition that happened from everyday parent-child tension and conflict to this kind of teamwork that it seems like you Mm -hmm. have. Can you Mm -hmm. tell us something about that evolution? I guess we have to step back to when he was first diagnosed with schizophrenia and he had his first onset, his first psychotic episode. It happened as a teenager, even before that. So he was diagnosed with autism as a child. I always knew there was some social and sensory. I took him to therapists and I knew something because he was always very sensitive to light, sound, and very precocious. Like when it came to academics, he was mm-hmm. reading and doing exceptional math at like two, like computing big numbers. And he mm-hmm. was reading like chapter books, Harry Potter by the time he was five. But socially, there was like in sensory, he was just get so overloaded. So I knew, so I took him, the schools would never do anything because he was so academically exceptional, but I knew there was something more than just academics. Mm -hmm. I knew there were some other things. So he was diagnosed with, at the time it was called Asperger's syndrome. So it's Mm -hmm. Asperger's. Now with DSM-5, that is now falls under the autism spectrum disorder. And then when he got to high school, he was always very academically um, gifted. As well as musically, he started playing cello at a young age, played in the youth symphony orchestra, and was taking high school level classes by middle school. By the time he got to high school, with all the social pressures of high school, and you're taking all these college level class academically, he was taking like calculus as a freshman. But the social aspect was just so overwhelming from him. And I think something happened in like with that social, because that social piece was always a challenge. I could never get an IEP, even though I fought for the schools. They would never give my IEP, even with the Asperger's, because academically, they felt like nothing impacted him academically. He never got any help from the school system. But he did end up having a psychotic break, because I think it was the combination of the school is pushing him academically, and then the social trying to fit in socially norm as a socially awkward teenager. It was very difficult. He had his first psychotic break. That was very devastating. It was scary because we didn't know what was going on. It was scary for him. He was terrified, scary for us as a family. And that's when he was first hospitalized. This was about 16. We went on and off for about a year, in and out of hospitalizations with psychotic breaks. 
because he was having episodes after episodes and it was, he didn't know what was going on. And at first they just call it psychosis. And then I guess after a certain amount of episodes, they then gave the diagnosis of schizophrenia on top of the autism. When we finally had a diagnosis, they kept trying different medicines. A lot of the medicines would not work. They tried everything and he would still have so many symptoms, very symptomatic. It was scary for him, and then he would come home and then have to go back to the hospital again. And he missed birthday, holidays. It was a very difficult time. As a parent, to see your child go through that, and he is such a wonderful child, to see your child suffering like that is the most heartbreaking thing. Um, it was very difficult. I was also pregnant at the time with mm-hmm. twins. And so it was really hard on my pregnancy. But I just made an effort. I wanted to get him better and get him help. That was my focus. That's all mm-hmm. I wanted to do. So I did research. I was looking at programs. I found John Hopkins Early Psychosis Program that was ran by Dr. Carolyn Heil. And I saw that early psychosis programs in my research provided the best outcome in for those newly diagnosed with schizophrenia mm-hmm. and psychosis. Those services for both him and you, like parent yes. and so, child? Yes, yes. Okay. So the way the early psychosis program works. Okay, so this is after all the hospitalizations. He was hospitalized in and out for a year. Different medicines did not work. I guess they worked to a certain degree, but he was not stabilized. So got him to the early psychosis program. He was released from the hospital. Got him the early the way that early psychosis programs work. It is not a hospital. It's not an inpatient program. It's like a more holistic approach. So the patients come one day a week to meet with a psychiatrist for medicine management. You also have a recovery coach, somebody that meets you. They would work with him in the field, so they would meet him at school, and then there were, you had an employment support coach to help train him for vocational mm-hmm. skills and professional right. skills. And then you also had the parent component. So you, the parents will come every other week. It was a more collaborative team approach to recovery. And the focus is on recovery. And that's why you have a recovery coach too. Once he got in that, he got in clozapine. That was the medicine Dr. Howell put him on. After he got into this, he never was hospitalized, knock on wood, ever again. Mm-hmm. It's a very supportive approach. You're looking at Helping the person from every aspect to reach their full potential is goal-based. Mm-hmm. So he worked with the recovery coach, set up his goals. What does he want to achieve for himself? It was goals-driven. So he got to set, where does he want to see himself in the next year? Where does he want to be in two years? Make strides towards those goals. And as I said, it's a collaborative. The parents are involved. So you do have the parent meetings. You're, you're involved. And I think that was it's a very successful program. Mm-hmm. Prior to that, let me like take a step back. So when he yeah, finally yeah. got the diagnosis, finally, after all the years of fighting for an IEP for him, he finally got an IEP for school. Once he got okay, the IEP that's for the school. the IEP. What does that stand? It's called the Individualized Educational Plan. So oh, that's yes. When you okay, thank you. Supportive services for school. Keep in mind that year, he was already a freshman. He was 16, I'm sorry. He was like a sophomore when he had his breakdown. So he missed the year of school because he was in and out of the hospital. Yeah. So because of that, they saw now this is impacting his education. Okay. Finally, I fought with the school system. I advocated for him, got him an IEP. 
and he was able to get private placements for high school. It was a private high school called Hannah Moore in Baltimore. It's run by Shepherd Pratt Hospital System. Okay. It was for students with IEPs who had emotional disturbance and autism. Okay. Emotional disturbance or autism. So he was able to get support while he was in high school. And he did that first. So at this point, he already had enough credits. Mm-hmm. Because remember, he was always doing high right. school classes. He only needed two high school credits to graduate at this point. Yeah. So he was about 17 at this time. And he was classified as a senior because he still needed two classes. But because he only needed two classes, they actually let him do dual enrollment. So he was also enrolled at Baltimore City Community College. Mm-hmm. And they allowed him to take classes yeah. that he didn't have to pay for because the I guess this IP, the school system pays for everything. Great deal. And, One of my sons he, did that too. He did his his senior high school year at the community college. So he got the dual credits, credits yes. which was yeah. great. Saved yeah. a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, totally. Now a word about our sponsor, A Bridge. Record your healthcare conversations with doctors and other clinicians with a bridge. Push the big pink button and record. Read the transcripts or listen to clips when you get home. Check out the app at abridge.com, A-B-R-I-D-G-E.com, or download it on the Apple App Store or Google Play Store. Let me know how it went. So, so it seems like, in a way, you were blessed in the sense of the relationship between you and your son. This whole experience was like freaky together as opposed to freaky apart. Is that true? Am I like hearing that right? Yeah. It was scary for both of us, but my goal as a parent was just to get him recovered, get him to get him help. And he was right. scared, so I wanted to help him. He needed right. to do everything I could to find resources, and all I did was reach out, find the resources to research and get him help. I'm in I'm t- technology background. I was working at FDA at the time, even though my focus has always been like medical technology and medical research. I'm big on looking at research, medical research, and right. what is successful. So <laughs> you were familiar in how to go out and learn more. Yes. yes. Okay. Wow. As I told you before we started recording that I'm doing this series, right? And <laughs> One of the reasons that I wanted to start my personal journey in this series with people with lived experience is I wanted to make sure that when I started talking with administrators and teachers and doctors, that I I was coming from a place of lived experience knowledge. 
as I start talking with doctors and people who administer inpatient programs and outpatient programs and community services, what do you think I should ask them about? They're going to talk about resources. They're going to talk about staffing. Mm -hmm. I'm predicting. I don't know, but that's what (laughs) I think. But what do you think I should be talking with them about that would be of interest to you to hear more Um, about that end of things? When you're going out to the community. Yeah. And I, and as you said, with the lived experience, I think it's important to really, in terms of even looking at the staffing, having people who have had that lived experience being the ones who are providing the professional services for newly diagnosed patients and providing that support. I think that's asking about that because a lot of times the doctor, certain doctors and counselors and therapists, they have not been to the experiences themselves and they're trying to offer advice. But what better advice can you give somebody who's newly going to this experience than somebody who's actually been there themselves, Hmm. been through that? And so I think that's a good thing to ask. Do you have people on your team who actually on your support team, staff team, who have lived experience. That's okay. an important thing to ask. And that's what Emeka is now doing. Even before Shepard Pratt, when he was first diagnosed, he was hospitalized for a month at Shepherd Pratt. That's an inpatient hospital in Baltimore. And then, as I said, he went to a high school that was Shepherd Pratt ran. Okay. He got, graduated from college, has his degree. He's actually now employed and working as a peer support specialist through Shepherd Pratt. Oh, so well, that's he great. Is, he is now on that team. So as I said, he had a team, an interdisciplinary team, psychiatrist, recovery coaches, and employment support who worked with him. He now is a part of that team, but being somebody who's actually been through that experience, it just brings so much more insight for newly diagnosed patients yes. to actually see, okay, wow, this is where I, how I can set my goals. This is the outcome. There's hope. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. There is light at the end of the tunnel. There is recovery because you're at a moment when you're first diagnosed that you're just feeling so helpless. And as a parent, you're like, wow, you, I'm in so many parent groups for parents with schizophrenia. They don't see that there's any hope or any outlet. They just see the moment and now. They don't think their kids can go to school, get a job, be productive citizens. But when you see, when you're in it gives people hope. Wow, this is possible. Yeah. So that's one thing I would ask if you have people who do have lived experience on the team. We had a family member who had pretty profound depression. And one of the challenges that we had was that we could not figure out how to be included on their team. You know what I mean? It was Mm -hmm. like their treatment, their support was extra, extra meaning not with us. Oh, okay, they didn't they didn't include the family in the treatment plan. Okay. And that was really hard because we didn't know how to act. We wanted right. to support the program. And it sounds to me like you landed in a program where 
you were part of it. Yes. And that's a big thing of the early psychosis clinic. The par- family support is a big component. That is a component. It's, it's yeah. that part of that collaborative team. And yeah. again, I, I guess that's something you, it's a good question to ask too. Like, is family part of that recovery team? Is that yeah. part of the team? Okay. And that's very important because then you, everybody's on the same page. Everybody's working together for the yeah. same goal. Yeah. Okay. So what advice do you have for parents who are living with a young adult with psychosis or serious mental illness? Like, What do you recommend? I recommend getting early intervention services, getting help, getting support immediately as soon as you can. So meaning like you smell that something's wrong rather yes. than there's some like full-blown crisis yes if you okay. know that something's wrong yeah get the help i mean the way okay. they call it early psychosis is just within the first year or two i believe okay. so first few psychotic episodes so once you realize there is psychosis in play and psychosis can occur with not just schizophrenia people with profound depression bipolar uh, anxiety. There's different things can manifest psychosis, okay. but once you see that psychosis is a play, just trying to get the support that addresses the need for support with people with psychosis. I believe every state in the United States has early psychosis programs that you could look up in your city and find out. Also, for the individual, I think it's good for them to realize that they're not alone. And these programs, they do offer social groups too. So they're not just social groups like in person or virtual or both. Yeah, partial. Yeah, virtual or in person or both. So the early psychosis groups, they do offer some social skills groups. Mameka was always in programs that did offer those services where he was with other people who had severe mental illness and they would have different topics, different discussions, yeah. movie groups, outings, go to the beach. During the pandemic, there was so much isolation and everything shut down. That was hard for him because he was so used to going in person to these social groups. Yes. And that all closed down. That was a very difficult time because there was so much isolation. He then found something called students with psychosis. Yeah, he was telling me about that. Yeah. This so is... students with psychosis is they started as an in-person group. I think it was started in Penn State University. Basically it's a group for College students, mm-hmm. um, and it's always international because psychosis occurs right. a lot with young adults. So it's right. usually in the high school and college age that people have their first breakdown. So this is a support group for people in college who had psychosis, or at the time it was originally called students with schizophrenia. So people with schizophrenia at the time, but now we know psychosis can. It's not just schizophrenia; it's schizoaffective. There's but so many different. It's an umbrella, like autism is the umbrella. So they started online services with the pandemic. And so he found this group and he joined their online services as a student leader because he was at the time in college. He was a college student and his college was all virtual. He was just going to college in person and all of his, your whole world is shut down. Mm -hmm. And for him, it was so important to have that old social aspect that's always been part of his recovery. Because he needs to connect with people. So it was really hard because your school is shut down. All your Mm -hmm. classes are now virtual. 
you don't have your social skills support, but he found the students with psychosis and they had programming every day of the week, different type of groups. They had open mics. They would have silent dance parties all online virtual through different web platforms, either Google Meets or on Zoom or Instagram Lives. He found a whole tribe of people internationally where he could connect to. They were also college students going Mm -hmm. through the struggles that he was going through, the challenges that he was going through. And so they realized that they're not alone and they could support each other. They can encourage each other. Okay, when midterms are up, they would have like little sessions to help people or when finals up to support each other because stress can trigger psychosis. So all the time when it's when your midterms and when you're a college student, any type of added stress can be havoc on your mental health. So it would just be this outlet of students going through different things and they would come together, support each other. He loved that. Yeah. He really found himself and he became a leader as started as a student leader. And actually now he's a secretary mm-hmm. on the executive board, helping with planning the programming and that. So finding, I would say for individuals, finding groups like that, so finding other individuals who are going through what you're going through. So yeah. the, the point is not feeling that you're alone. Yeah. Before we wrap up, so what should we have talked about that we didn't talk about? I'm trying to think. Well, where do parents turn? I guess that's the thing. It's so hard that when you're in this situation, you don't know where to look. Mm-hmm. And as I said, that's probably the hardest thing. Yeah. For parents, I would say, first of all, finding support groups for parents. There's groups. There's Omni groups. Um, what does that stand for? No, I think it's National Association of Mental Illness. Yeah. So okay. they have parent groups. So finding other parents who are going through with you, going through, but uh, one caveat to that is be careful because you'll see so many people. You'll see a lot of negative things and there's not a lot of hope, not a yes. lot of success stories. So I that think, can also you know, bring you into a deeper hole. That's so smart. I agree. I, I have found for myself that I'm involved with different groups of people with lived experience. But if it smells negative to me, I drop it. Mm -hmm. I'm pathologically optimistic and Mm -hmm. I want to stay that way. I don't want to mess with it. Yeah. Especially in Facebook groups, you'll find a lot of negativity where you don't see any hope. You you will hardly see any success stories, to be honest. And when you do, is that possible? Like they won't believe can see because people are suffering and they're feeling they're suffering and that's but yeah anyway okay yeah this is great hey thank you very much thank you thanks erica take care thank you bye bye as i reflect on this conversation with erica i'm struck by how proud she is of Emika. She made such an effort to advocate for her son. She emphasized finding professionals with lived experience. She appreciated the integrated team. She values positive support and a sense of hope from other parents. The organizations I've worked with had leaders 
in and out of the C-suite, clinicians, and peer recovery specialists with lived experience. But I've spoken but I've spoken with others that struggle to build that kind of team, don't have peer specialists, and may or may not have advisory panels of people with lived experience. In my own family, we've experienced mental illness. In one case, the institution's licensed professionals provided little sense of hope. If one of the aides hadn't told us privately to hang in there, I'm not sure what the results might have been. Another time, we couldn't become part of the team, but in fairness, our family member didn't want us to. Parents, families, and caregivers have such a brutal row to hoe. What experience have you had? What wisdom can you share? Help me learn. Email at danny at health-hats.com or go to my website, health-hats.com, and leave a comment. Health Hats presents the next episode with Annie Schneider, an emerging adult with her story about major depression, followed by an episode with Matt Neal, a high school teacher. Watch, listen, read here next to hear clips from both Annie and Matt. Show notes with an article-grade transcript and links can be found on my website, health-hats.com slash pod. I can remember when I was 15, over 10 years ago, things were not right. And I was not, I was not really my best self in just a lot of ways. And I was struggling a lot. And I think my parents noticed it in me first, but eventually I very quickly saw a lot of it. I was really unfocused in school. I had quick temper. I had just a lot going on that was not healthy. And of course, many people, when we're teenagers, of course, you have your mood swings and all kinds Mm -hmm. of normal things. We're humans, we're all humans, but I was not like other 15 year olds. So it turned into a lot of, I had a lot of preoccupation and obsession with like negative thoughts and negative thought patterns and unfocused in school. My, my mom would report later on. I find out from my mom. She of course didn't tell me in the moment, but later on I found out I just, I had a very like glassed over, glazed over look on my face. And then my eyes a lot of the time, I didn't have a lot of, no, it sounds kind of cliche and kind of dumb, but I just didn't have a lot of my spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, it was kind of a shell of myself starting at 15. At least that was when it turned into like a hair journey to, recover and get well. I have a group of kids at our school called the Ambassadors running our new student program. About six years ago, our principal came to me and said, hey, we have this population of students in our school that are being missed. I think that they are lonely and being dropped into our school community, even though we're all very well-meaning and everything, they're not being supported. Will you do this? I said, I would love to do that work. Our group takes a heart-centered approach. We just want to scoop these kids up and bring them on board. We have 78 current members. Every student in that group is teacher-recommended for their 
ability to work with others, their kindness, their heart, and their willingness to improve the lives of others. When a new student comes in, gets a tour of the building, that's a detailed tour as well as the opportunity to connect with people around. They get somebody to eat lunch with, and they get a check-in at the end of the day. And there's three points of contact, as opposed to no points of contact before, make the student feel welcomed into our school community. And then the goal is to have that student remain as a contact and a first friend for those students in our building. I host, write, engineer, and produce Health Hats, the podcast. Kayla Nelson provides website and social media consultation and manages dissemination. Joey Van Leeuwen supplies musical support, especially for the podcast intro and outro. I play Barry Sachs on some episodes alone or with the Lechuga Fresca Latin Band. I'm grateful to you who have the most critical roles as listeners, readers, and watchers. See the show notes, previous podcasts, and other resources through my website, www.health-hats.com and my YouTube channel, D-V-A-N-L-E-E-U. Please subscribe and contribute. If you like it, share it. See you around the block.